welcome to the Liberated Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, licensed social worker and therapist. Join me as I sit down with guests to chat about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. Today, I sit down with Natalie, who is based in New Zealand, and we talk about her religious and spiritual experiences of growing up in evangelicalism and then joining a cult in Namibia, escaping the cult, going back into evangelicalism, and eventually into Mormonism, and then her path of leaving these high-control groups. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Oh, well, it's it's evening over here, but oh. yeah, it's morning <laughs> over where, where you're at. But yeah, I'm just like, I'm super stoked that like we got to connect. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. There's not a really big um ex-evangelical community here in New Zealand but it'll it'll be good it's good to to talk about these things where I'm based at now there's not a large ex-evangelical community out here either Um, um and so but it's like I think that a lot of people connect and resonate with it you know in so many other areas as well where it's like or the people that are in these areas that have less ex-evangelicals like they're like damn like I feel seen <laughs> yeah yeah I mean thank god for um the social media right for yes helping to connect us all evangelicalism sometimes mm. it can feel intense and I'm wondering and you're experience can you tell me more about what your faith experience was like like did you grow up religious did you later convert to evangelicalism and then leave or tell tell me more about that so my mom became a christian i think just a few years before i was born um so i was very much born into that culture Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. she always used to tell me I was her first child that was born into yes like into that sanctity of of religion of her beliefs of her relationship with God oh Um, wow so how did that sit with your siblings because it sounds like you have an (laughs) older sibling or siblings like this this seems like some Jacob and Rachel stuff going on right now you know yeah (laughs) So I have an older sister who's five years older than me and my brother is three years older than me. And then I have a half brother Mm -hmm. who's 12 years younger than me. Okay. I don't want to speak for my sister's religious beliefs because I'm not entirely certain what they are. She, from what I perceive, she never was super into church and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure like I've never actually asked them how that made them feel. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's not... Of all the things we've talked about over the years, it's not something that's come up. Um, so now yeah. I might actually go and ask them. I can't imagine that would have felt great, um, especially because so I was born 10 weeks early. And when I was three days old, I medically died. So, oh, my gosh, all wow. of my childhood, my mum would say that I was her miracle child. Hmm. How did that feel to be embodied as this miracle child or that was the narrative that mm. was told to you before you could even speak. It put a lot of pressure on me. Yeah. I mean, one, it made me feel special. Like mm-hmm. 
um, as I think it would make most children feel. Looking back now, it probably pushed me more into the extreme beliefs that I held even as a child because it was it was making my mum happy Mm. yeah but yeah no I so because my parents grew up Catholic my dad would come to church but not again I won't speak for what he believes now but um I think he would dip out any chance he could (laughs) like he didn't wasn't something he really wanted to spend his Sundays doing but yeah I grew up in like as a child in Baptist churches. So tell me more about what kind of Baptist churches, because I also grew up in Baptist churches and I, oh. I had a experience like, well, I had experiences with Southern Baptist, also fundamentalist Baptist, independent Baptist. Yeah. And so was it very conservative? Like I, I would go to some churches where it was like I was having to wear ankle length dresses type of a thing. But then there were other Baptist churches where I could wear jeans. <laughs> right I think it's a little different here I think most Baptist churches it's each to their own um they kind of make up their own rules from what I have seen um interesting so is there not a board of Baptist in New Zealand there probably is but it's not something I've thought super hard about that's fascinating I'm... because that is something in the U.S. where it's like the boards are very, very prominent to the point where it's like a five-year-old is like aware that this board exists. Like it's oh. like the president type of a thing. Oh my um, gosh. Because that is, yeah, it's like this overarching, just power in the sky type of a thing oh for Baptist. Yeah, no, not like that. <laughs> okay. So then, Mm-mm. so from your experience of being Baptist, was there a head pastor? Were there multiple pastors? Were there elders? Or how, how did that power structure look in your church? From what I can remember, because we only attended Baptist churches till I was 11. And okay. then it was um, Pentecostal churches. There was a senior pastor and mm-hmm. there was, yeah, and there were elders. I didn't really pay them too much attention, mm-hmm. but it was the type of Baptist church I remember specifically. I would have only been maybe three because I thought it was really funny. We had a children's program and I was up on the stage and we were singing This Little Light of Mine. And for some reason, they'd given us actual candles to hold. <laughs> oh, no. And, um, and when it got to the part where it said, don't let Satan blow it out, I blew my candle out because I thought it was funny. <laughs> and, it is. Uh, the Sunday school teacher came running up to the stage to like quickly relight it. And, um, and then it was the kind of church, like I remember quite vividly women being up the front with their ribbons and dancing around. And I mean, I was always taught to dress quite modestly. Like that mm-hmm. was a big thing. I mean, especially when attending church, you cover up. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think I remember there being quite a few women. And I mean, like my mum would wear longer skirts and make sure her shoulders were covered and stuff at church but I'm not 100% sure how much of that was the church culture or was that just the fashion at the time (laughs) yeah I'd I'd have to yeah I've not thought about that one super hard yeah no I I hear you and so whenever you're mentioning you know the women at the front of the church dancing with Mm. ribbons just for listeners here who aren't familiar with that reference (laughs) so it's like 
imagine going to like a marching band and seeing people with like different batons or the ribbons for the marching band and in some churches that were more charismatic they Mm -hmm. would have the different ribbons and these people would have this belief that they were having their body moved by the spirit of God. And so then there were just ribbons and <laughs> leaping and jubilee yeah. <laughs> happening in, in the front. But yeah, the Baptist church that I went to, there was no dancing allowed. Oh, and um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so you went from the Baptist church mm-hmm. to the Pentecostal church. Yeah. And so what were the differences that you noticed in making that transition? The Pentecostal church I went to was a lot more laid back. We didn't have like formal hymns. It was the worship music was Hillsong. Okay. Um, which is very problematic now, but... um. Yeah, there was that. It was even just the the physical buildings themselves. It was just so relaxed. Like I remember we tried a Baptist church when we moved to Rotorua when I was 11 and it was like pews, like wooden pews like you get in mm-hmm. um, really old Anglican churches and stuff like that. And then we went to this Pentecostal church and it was like the chairs that you have to stack up at the end of each service and you put it out and there was this big stage with you know the drums and the keyboard set up and um you know I could within reason I remember getting told off still quite a lot because I've always pushed boundaries but um you know you could you could wear jeans and nobody would look at you sideways and you could wear a slightly cropped top kind of it depended who was there. You know, we could be loud. And while while one of the Baptist churches I grew up to did the dancing and stuff like that, I remember going to an evening service at the Pentecostal church for the first time and all the youth got up and stood around the stage and were jumping. And I was like, <laughs> what on earth is going on? <laughs> there was so, so much jumping. There was yeah. two... There was yeah. too much jumping in this. Oh my gosh, yes. Later on, like as a teenager, I was a youth leader at a different Pentecostal church. I'm well endowed in my chest, even then. Um, and our youth pastor at the time came up to me and was like, you're a youth leader, you should be jumping, you should be leading by example. And I was like, I don't think it's appropriate for me to be jumping. And he was like, what, why? And I was like, why do you Oh, my goodness. You know, we're supposed to be modest and um, not leading people's thoughts astray, but then you're telling me off because I'm not Mm. jumping around like a jack-in-the-box. Yeah. Yeah. There's, like, these dialectical messages being told to those assigned female at birth in the church of – saying one thing but then also expecting another yeah and it is so hard to navigate that and I think like I mean I know from my own experience it caused anxiety because it's like well you know which one is going to be the right way you know it's like you know the two emergency buttons and trying to figure out which one to to press and I'm 
wondering in your experience, like, was that anxiety provoking for you? Or did it feel like you were able to finesse the system or? (laughs) No, no, I was in a constant state of feeling anxious and unsure. And it really messed with my head a lot. Like I never knew in any given moment, really, because it depended on the person, it depended on what mood they were in as to what I should be doing what I could get away with, what I couldn't, what I would get reprimanded for. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, it's, it's taken a while, even now, like I'm still undoing a lot of that. Yeah. There's a very different social dynamic from, you know, going from that type of a setting where there's so many different social rules to then leaving that yeah and <laughs> whenever I left it I was like what are the rules and people yeah. are like what are you talking about <laughs> and I'm like no you know the rules the rules from people outside of this and they're like there aren't I'm like no there yeah. are <laughs> they're like no no <laughs> you know yeah and you know there's I, I think that there can be so much um, liberation and just like, huh, like an exhale yeah. and leaving of being like, there's no rules, but then there's also this part that can also be like, oh my gosh, there's no rules <laughs> of not having that kind of a structure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have recently learned that I'm autistic, which makes so much sense, but it also makes sense why I really struggled with never knowing (laughs) like nothing was routine nothing was um set in stone it always fluctuated that would be very challenging and something I'm wondering from your experience too like Mm. there were so many different analogies that are said in evangelicalism Mm. and do you hear things in a literal type way and if so like how that um affected things whenever being in evangelicalism and them using <laughs> so many analogies and idioms so I would I would hear things so even some scripture I would I would sit there during a service or a conference or wherever it was and I'd be like this is weird this doesn't make sense mm-hmm. I mean one, it just doesn't anyway. No. But um, <laughs> right. just the, the the metaphors and stuff. And I would go home and I would mm-hmm. quite often read it for myself and I'd be like, what on earth? And But I was, I was really, really good at masking. So I would just kind of go along with it when I was in front of people. But I would go home and I'd be like, what the heck? Yeah. I don't, I don't understand it. Like, um. And it's been interesting because my husband, um, we're fairly certain he's autistic as well, um, definitely has ADHD. And it, it's been mm-hmm. interesting going through this process with him as well and some of the conversations we have. And then our kids will hear us talking about some of these examples of what we were told in church. Yeah. And they would be like, huh? That mm-hmm. what? Like, how does that even make sense? And um, And yeah, because I was quite literal a lot of the time I was just I felt constantly confused (laughs) like nobody else is taking this literally 
Nobody else thinks that we are literally walking around like sheep. Mm-hmm. But why are they saying I'm like the sheep? And God is a shepherd. He doesn't actually look after sheep. Like, <laughs> but nobody else was questioning that. It was just me sitting there going, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah, it is such a conundrum, right? Like, I, I think that high control religion attracts so many folks who are neurodiverse because yeah. there are these structures set in place where it's like, oh, I can have an expectation. Like, I can have an expectation that every Sunday morning I'm going to show up at 9 a.m. and yeah. the service is going <laughs> to start at 9 a.m. and then yeah. we're going to sing until 9.20. And then from 9.20 until 9.22, we're going to pray. And then from 9.22, you, you know, and so it's like all of these things that provide that, that structure. But then yeah. there's that other part where there's all of these idioms in it. There's all of these analogies. And then there's this power structure where it's like if there is a lack of understanding about these biblical interpretations because that's all these symbolizations are, then it's, you know, then you have to ask the next person who's in authority. And Hmm. so then it continues to be this dependence on the power structures that, that be that I think keeps people who are neurodivergent in these spaces for a very long time whenever questioning things yeah it's uh i was gonna say it's quite predatory but that seems a bit harsh but i know i i agree yeah (laughs) we we gotta call it what what it is um it's not okay yeah i mean for me like as a as a kid as well like from then forward because i had been taught Satan is always watching. He's always there Mm. to trip you up and lead you astray and all this stuff. And as a kid, I would feel like I was being watched. And um, for Mm -hmm. me, that's how I saw it. I don't know. It just, it drags you in from a a really young age. It's, yeah. It does. There's very subtle messaging that Mm. they had for kids. And it can be really surprising and those different ways that it can come back up in adulthood. Oh yeah. There are some things that come up lately. It's not every day. It's maybe every other day, but for a while it was nearly every day where I'd have something, some thought, or I would react to something in a certain way and I'd have to stop myself and go, why, why am I thinking that? Why am I reacting like that? And it would be mm. a process of who told me that? Where did I hear that? Yeah. Is that, does that align with what I believe now? Um, so, yeah, it's very, very pervasive. Yeah. So you are going through this process whenever you're growing up. Mm. And then what happens whenever you got to that point of graduating did you continue on in <laughs> Pentecostal or why, what was next for you? So do you mean like graduating like high school type of thing? Like yeah. that time in life? Um, yeah. So that's a little messy. So I never graduated high school. I, so I became a children's church leader at 11. I became a youth group leader at 14. Um, mm. At 16, I decided 
I didn't need an education. It was better for me to work for the church. It was like, I remember my mum telling me that science wasn't real. Like I was one of these Mm. kids that grew up thinking that dinosaurs never existed because they're not in the Bible. Wow. So I remember arguing with my science teacher in high school being like, I don't need to learn about this because it's not real. So it's been interesting with my kids being at high school. I'm actually having to learn (laughs) what, what they're learning. Like they ask me questions and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So yeah, I left school at 16 thinking I think it was a good use of my time to be at church all of the time doing things. I had started a drama club, a, a drama team at church. So we'd put on productions and it's really cringy now. I look back and go, oh my gosh. But um, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. But I, I was one of these kids at high school as well who I started a um, – it wasn't even just the Christian club. It was the prayer club at school and I would browbeat because I went to an all-girls school and I would browbeat the other kids who went to youth group with me I'd be like you have to come or I'm going to tell the youth pastor that you're not being supported like oh it is so I yeah I try not to live with regrets but some of the stuff I just look back and I'm like oh my gosh what on earth I know I cringe at things that I did too I was in a bible club whenever I went (laughs) to the public school you know and yeah I had my um parents pull me out of the evolution classes at my public school that I went to and so it wasn't until adulthood and that I I met some people who were biologists, scientists, you know, and I, I was like, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but um, can you please teach me evolution? I'm yeah. like, I know that I'm an adult. And, and I was like, but I literally don't know because I've been told a bunch of shit. And yeah. I was just, you know, sitting and my eyes were so big. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, they're looking at me like, you know, my face is like full of wonder. Like, like I'm, I'm like in first grade, you know, because I'm, I'm hearing this for the very first time, you know, and it's, it's a very, it's a very humbling experience to be learning things in adulthood. And yet, I don't know about you, but whenever I was a teenager and really invested in that theology, I was very proud. And Mm -hmm. that is the thing that I regret the most of the pride that I showed towards others and really believing that I knew what was right. And yet it was so erroneous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is really humbling. Like I still have some friends from high school and a couple of them weren't Christians at the time and still aren't. And I've got in contact with them and I'm like, thank you for putting up with me at that time. And I'm really sorry that I ever pressured you or made you feel less than because that's what I did because that's what I was taught. You know, you need to save people, but yeah, I, I'm not proud of those things, but yeah. I love that you just said that, though, because I get asked that, like, how do I live with the guilt of what happened whenever, you know, mm. still being in high control religion and, yeah. like, making amends, going back to those people and, 
apologizing, asking for forgiveness and working on making things right. And so I just, I love to hear that you did that. So that's very cool. But going back to, you know, you being a a Bible teacher, a, a church teacher at such a young age, yeah. For those listening to the podcast that did not grow up in church, this might be something very shocking to be hearing, but this is unfortunately a reality that happens mm. in a lot of churches where it is essentially unpaid child labor and they encourage children to do this and they know that the children are vulnerable and will perform out of praise by adults. And what I've seen and experienced from being a child and doing all this unpaid labor for the church, I saw that the churches were more, and again, this was just my experience, but it seemed like children were doing about 50% of the work and the adults were doing the other 50. And In your experience, did you see something similar or were you not in the norm of, you know, of doing all this unpaid child labor? I mean, yeah, as as a teenager, we were the ones sitting the chairs out. So getting there, you know, 7.30 on a Sunday morning and being at both services. So being there until, you know, 10 o'clock at night, packing everything up and the adults would more often than not have hit at home and but at the same time I I was quite extreme in my mm-hmm. devotion and my commitment I had a very troubled home life so I sought approval from people at church mm-hmm. and for me that was how I could get people to like me mm-hmm. was I would serve and I would serve a lot mm. it's just like in hearing that it was something that I also experienced where I, I had a troubled home life and mm. I worked at camps for seven summers and they were all Christian based. And it seems like the kids who would go back and volunteer year after year where if they signed a legal document for working, it would be illegal for what was expected of, of children. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. The children, I, I would say 90% had childhood trauma histories that yeah. I knew of. And in, in my eyes, it's, it's child exploitation as well as, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to say, it, it's child human trafficking. Mm. What is going on? And yet there were so many missions trips to children of trying to rescue children within these sectors and and yet mistreating these children and I just want to say I'm I'm so sorry for what you experienced and and that was not right yeah I I have to remind myself of that a lot that as hard as I am on myself about the decisions I made and the things I said and and all of that a lot of it was the adults in my life, whether at home or at church, shouldn't have been allowing me as a kid Mm -hmm. to do these things. Like at 14, going to a 
a children's church camp and being a leader there. Mm-hmm. I was only a few years older than some of them. And yeah. I was in charge of a whole room full of them. I had to make sure that they were in their beds. I had to make sure that they had eaten. I had to follow them around this whole weekend at mm-hmm. 14 in charge of these kids. And I have a 14 year old my, myself now. Yeah. And there's no way I would ever let that happen. Like that would be a hard yeah. move for me. Um, and it's not that I'm against hard work or anything like that, but that's not okay. And yeah, and, and I mean, I spent from 11 years old to about 18, mm. just the amount of time I spent at church was insane. Like I should, I should have been at school getting an education, but I wasn't. And if we would have been paid minimum wage, we, we would probably be rich. <laughs> Probably, even with what minimum wage was back then, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. But, I um, know it. So what happened whenever you became an adult? Ah, so, I mean, at 16 I'd left school, but then I also ended up on a missions trip to Namibia in Africa. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, it ended up being a cult, like a full-blown these people were weird. I had to escape from it. How long were you there for? I was only there for four months. Okay. But it felt like a lot longer. Like Four months is still a very substantial time. And so you say the people were weird. Whenever yeah, so... you first got there, did you notice that something was off or did it take you longer to notice that something was off? So... Because it started because my mum had gone to a conference in New Zealand and these two women had come over from this organisation and were preaching and stuff. But they wore these robes like people depict Jesus as wearing. That type of stuff. Wore the Roman sandals, the whole thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> I wasn't in school and I was like, man, it would be really cool to go over and help them out because they ran an orphanage and they ran a woman's home. And so, but originally I had felt like God was telling me to go to another ministry, which was, hmm. I don't know if you would have heard of it, um, the Heidi Baker ministry. No, I haven't. Uh, she does or did, I'm not sure if she does anymore. She did a lot of work, I think, in Mozambique. They wouldn't take me because I was under 18. And then these ladies that were at the conference, they were like, oh, you could come and help us and work with us and you can work with the children. And I was like, man, that sounds really cool. And then my mum felt like God had told her to come with me. So she sold her house and paid for us to go, which is one of the biggest regrets I have because my mum has nothing now. Mm. Um, And that was, I mean, a little bit of context with my mum. She had undiagnosed bipolar when I was a teenager. So she was probably in one of her bipolar highs at the time. Okay. Um, She had people all around her saying, don't do this. This isn't smart. But she felt like God was telling her to do it. And I was 16. I was just like, man, well, I don't have to go and work for a couple of years to save up to do this. Mum's paying for it. Cool. Uh, um, so I've got another question for, yeah. for you here about that. So yeah. whenever people are in manic episodes with bipolar disorder, mm. sometimes they can experience this symptom where 
they are increasingly religious and really feel like more euphoric in religious spaces or about religious things. Yeah. And like, were there times in your upbringing where you noticed like this kind of like intensity and growing up with your mom that she had whenever she was in manic phases? Yeah. Yeah. I've just, I've never heard it said like that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she would be, um, cause I, as a kid, I just identified it with as mum's really happy at the moment. Yeah. Um, cause otherwise she was taking sleeping pills and sleeping all the time. Um, you know, I remember her taking me to healing meetings, um, Mm-hmm. and stuff because because I'd born, been born so early my lungs were a bit stuffed up but I remember her being super enthusiastic and super happy about it so it must have been when she was in those yeah manic times which makes a lot of sense thank you I was validating for me as well that yeah I just I didn't know that was a thing yeah That's, yeah it's really interesting because there are these different um preachers and the great awakenings where whenever uh, psychologists look back at their text and look at, you know, if they could analyze, psychoanalyze these uh, preachers from their texts, they notice that there are some preachers such as Charles Spurgeon um, or Jonathan Edwards who show mm-hmm. signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder. Huh. Yeah. Or even you take, for instance, George Frederick Handel, who wrote The Messiah, he wrote that during the manic episode. And so there's, wow. yeah, it's wow. fascinating that okay. a lot of evangelicalism was really sparked by people living with bipolar disorder. Wow. I'm going to yeah. go do some reading up on that. That's fascinating. Whoa. But yeah, mum, mum paid for the whole thing. Um, and we went and it was within probably within 24 hours of being there. I was like, I want to go home. <laughs> mm-hmm. This feels wrong. Um, so I, I used to be quite creative and I carried a sketchbook around with me and a stick of charcoal and would just doodle away. And we'd only been at the home for a, a handful of hours and one of them had come up to me and was like, oh, my gosh, is that God telling you to draw these things? And I was like, what? No. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, it must be. And then, and then they introduced us to people in the home and said that we were prophets from New Zealand. And I was like, pardon me? Huh. Um, so red flags, very, very very soon um yeah absolutely yeah and I mean like so so it was two women so it was a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law um Sharon oh Tersha and Sharon Tersha had a, a son named Seth and I should have known it was a little bit off when I was introduced to him and they told me he was named Seth because his dad's name was Adam and I sat there oh, no. really confused and I was like, what the heck are you on about? And they had to explain to me that Adam had a son named Seth. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> he had grown his hair out 
so that he looked like Jesus, had a beard, he wore white robes all the time. So my mum, before we'd gone to Namibia, had bought me a ponamu, which is in the Māori culture that's a, a taonga, like a treasure. Um, it's mm-hmm. a jade necklace and it was in the shape of a, call it a kuru pattern, but like a spiral. And he had seen me wearing it and he pointed at me. And it was the first time I met him, he pointed at me and he was like, you need to take that off. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he was like, that is Satan trying to tempt me. You need to take that off. And I was like, what on earth are you on about? And then mm. he, it turned out that he had done a lot of drugs when he was a bit younger and he had like these weird hallucinations and stuff. And I ended up taking it off just to make him shut up. But just red flag after red flag after red flag. And I, the purpose of me going was to help in the children's home, like in the orphanage. But they told me I couldn't live there like planned because one of the men that was living there liked teenage girls a bit too much so Mm. I had to live in the woman's home which was predominantly a lot of women who had been prostitutes and were trying to get out of that line of work and get their feet under them and stuff which as a 16 year old white girl from New Zealand who had been very sheltered and it was very eye-opening but my mum went into a depressive state like she didn't leave her bed Mm -hmm. other than to use the bathroom for weeks so at 16 I was just kind of left to fend for myself in Africa I thought nothing of walking around the streets with my big bag on and I mean at the time this is aging me um with my uh cd player (laughs) out I would walk into shops and just take cash out not even thinking about it Mm -hmm. and um there was a guy who'd lived at the, so the there was the woman's home and then on the same property, but in different buildings, there was a men's home. And there was this, he was the most beautiful man. Um, we called him Opa. And he was mute and deaf, but he would follow me around. Wherever I went, Opa was there. And I think it was just to make sure that I was okay and I was safe because... Mm. I don't know how I managed to not have something happen, but... um, Did you feel safe with him? With him, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which surprised me because I don't often feel safe with men. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me rephrase that. I don't often feel safe with cis men. Uh, My family's just full of pedophiles and stuff, so I was always taught to be very scared of them and stuff. But... Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I felt felt safe with him. Yeah, it was was really traumatic. And my mum had made a, a friend with a hairdresser there who invited my mum to go live with her because my mum was really unhappy. Mm. And the the people who led this organisation or headed it started to tell me that my mum was going against what God wanted. Just started to slowly be like, oh, you know, you shouldn't listen to your mum. You can stay here with us. So my mum went off moved in with these other people, left me in this home at 16. And these women um, even took me to the immigration place to get, to see if I could get residency so that mum could go back to New Zealand and I could stay there. It seems like this was them testing the waters to see if you would separate yourself from your family and join their cult. 
Yeah, very much so. And I remember even sitting in the immigration building because the the immigration officer looked really confused and was like, "Um, where's your mum? Like, where are your parents? And I just remember having a conversation with one other woman and I was like, if I stay, are you going to pay me? Because I need to be able to purchase clothing for myself, food, sanitary products. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't have nothing. Right. And they were like, oh, no, no, well, God will provide. And I was like, even then, as religious as I was, I was like, "Mm, money doesn't just fall from the sky. (laughs) Yeah. As much as you might like to try and tell me it does, it doesn't. Um, So after about maybe a month of being there by myself, I'd had a moment where there was no one else in the home because Mm -hmm. they would listen in on my phone calls um, where I managed to call my mum. And I was like, can you please come and get me? And then I spent the next few days quietly packing my stuff and just telling people in the home that I was just trying to tidy up a bit. Managed to get my massive backpack in the car and then this Seth guy just comes charging out of the house and started chasing the car. And oh my it goodness. was just, yeah, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. But um, we came back to New Zealand, but then the trauma of what had happened there, I had no one to talk to about it. Yeah, you were very isolated, and they also made it so that you were more isolated too, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, none of my peers, like, coming back to New Zealand, none of my peers understood it. Right. They thought I was exaggerating. Um, my mum didn't really want to talk about it very much, but she'd also had a different experience to what mm-hmm. I'd had. But then we moved to a different city in New Zealand, um, Hamilton, mm-hmm. and I joined a Pentecostal church <laughs> led by this guy that had been a guest speaker at my church in Rotorua. So I was like, oh, mm. I'll give that a go. Even though I had doubts, I had questions about, like I, I didn't like anymore to be told what to believe. Yeah. If you can't mm-hmm. give me a reason for it, I don't want to do it because I did that when I was in Africa and look where that got me. Yes. Um, yes. Within... I think within a month of attending that church, I became a youth leader again. Hmm. Did it feel different that time after now having been in a cult and Hmm. then having become a legal adult? So the thing is, I wasn't even an adult yet. I was only 17. I was trying to cover up what had actually happened Mm -hmm. when I was in Africa and I didn't want anyone to think I had wasted my time or my mum's time and money. Mm. So I tried really hard to still fit into these boxes of what people were expecting of me and Mm -hmm. with these religious beliefs, but the whole time going, I don't, I don't understand this. Yeah. Um, The church that I joined, well, it was in a New Zealand church, like it was led by a New Zealander, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in the youth leadership. It was heavily led by South African white cis males. And I just butted heads with them all the time because I was like, stop telling me what to do. Stop telling me that just because I'm a a woman that I should be quiet and that I should submit to your authority. And I spent, Mm. trying to think how long I was in that church for, about three years. 
I mean, this is very bold that you used your voice in that way. I think being in these settings Mm -hmm. and these very misogynistic patriarchal type settings. Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard to do that. So I really admire that you spoke up. Um, I, I was shunned for it though. I was, cause I ended up getting a job because I, oh, I turned 18 and I was like, crap, I actually need to get a job. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need something that pays some money. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. you know, prior to that hadn't been really a thought. My mum provides for me um, and she couldn't once I turned 18. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I went and got a job, but it was 60 hours a week. Like it was long hours but it meant I couldn't be at church six days a week. And because of that, and because I went to my senior pastor and I went to my youth pastor and I said, I still want to be involved in church, but I can't to the same extent because I'm working so much. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, no, 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 that's fine. But then I wasn't invited to leaders' meetings. I wasn't allowed Mm -hmm. to be on the prayer team anymore because I wasn't as worthy Mm. or, and it became super isolating. And that was probably along with my time in Africa, probably really was the start of me going, I don't think I can do this anymore. Absolutely. And it's like, I'm hearing these similarities there where in Africa, it was a, more bold way of isolating you Mm. there but then at the same point it's like being an evangelicalism like that that's very isolative you know there's that that phrase to be in the world but not be of the world which is Mm -hmm. such a riddle (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, to say but for listeners who have not heard that phrase before what it basically means is you need to be in line like like you have to follow what the church is saying and if you do not follow what the church is saying and if you follow more of what the cultural norms are then you will be shut out and so you know it's like even in trying to get an income outside of the church after being in ministry for a long time that that's a boundary there. That's a financial boundary that can end up costing people their social resources and their spiritual resources. And you had built up all of this, I'll I'll call it social capital and spiritual capital Mm. um, over all of these years of being a child. And then, and having these boundaries and, and trying to provide for yourself. Yeah. Then, that that wasn't honored it wasn't respected yeah Yeah. um I actually ended up leaving my job I just quit Mm. because so at the time I was dating my husband and he was a youth leader and he was on the worship team and stuff and he he was at all of these things and I wasn't able to be there and Mm. my friends stopped talking to me and not in a I don't think many of them meant it in a really nasty way. It was just, I wasn't at things. So therefore out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I lost that safety of that approval from the church. I lost that because I, 
I was having a hard time in my family. Like I had just come out and told them about being sexually abused as a child and Mm -hmm. my extended family stopped talking to me. Mm. Um, My immediate family weren't super impressed either, I don't think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I lost this community. Mm. So I was like, I mean, I had only just turned 18 and I was like, well, stop it. I'll just Mm. not have a job. I never got back to that spot again where I was in favor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, so my husband and I got married when I was 18 and we decided together we we should take a year off mm-hmm. of leadership just to focus on our relationship because <laughs> we had only been together 10 months before we got married. So yeah. we kind of needed to get to know each other a little bit more and we were ostracized for it. And then because I had been told a lot growing up, my purpose in life was to have children. That's what I should do. Yes. So at 18 going, right, we need to start a family we struggled with infertility, Mm. which nobody talked about because that was always, um, if you can't have children, it's because of sin in your life um, and you need to devote yourself more to God, all this stuff. And (sighs) that makes me so angry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And having gone through it, I, it was heartbreaking for me going to church and seeing other couples who had gotten married around the same time as us and they were all yeah. getting pregnant and having mm. their babies and I wasn't able to do the one thing that God had created me for. Mm. And it really did, it broke me mentally. Like I I started having massive panic attacks going to church. Mm-hmm. Like there would be times where I would have to go sit in the car Mm-hmm. for the entire service I'd leave my husband inside I'd be like I'm going out to the car but I didn't know how to articulate any of it mm-hmm. and it got to a point where we decided as a couple look this isn't the right place for us yeah. um, and we tried going to our senior pastor and saying you know we want to leave in the best way possible mm-hmm. um, the pastors started rumors that it was because we mm were bad Christians or because we'd started our own church because we wanted to compete with them. And I was like, I'm just trying to make it through each day right now. Do you think I have the energy to um, be starting a new church? Um, Yeah. And, but then Mm. both my husband and I, we lost most of our friends and yeah, we, we didn't, we tried going back to other churches Mm -hmm. Um but I would have panic attacks, but didn't know what those were because you didn't talk about mental health. You didn't talk about, or if you did, it was, you yeah. needed to pray more. And yeah, at the same point, like really this, this root of your panic attacks was from the extraordinary amount of pressures that were placed on you by yeah. the church. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, in hindsight, it would have been the best thing for me to step away at that point. But um, years of conditioning and being told, you know, you to be a good Christian, you should be in church. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up having children. Um, I thought I was so old having my children at 21 and 22. <laughs> <laughs> 
And now I'm just like, uh-uh, I hope my kids, if they decide to have children, I'm like, can you, like, wait until you're in your 30s and have lived some life and all of that stuff? But um, Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I had an aunt of mine send me a letter whenever I was, uh, like, 21 years old, and, um, and it was wedding card. And I was like, what? I'm like, has, has she gotten me mistaken for my sibling? And even that's late. And then I look inside the card and I read it and it says, well, I'm probably going to be dead by the time you get married. So oh <laughs> <laughs> what? She, she's passed now and I still haven't gotten married. But <laughs> Oh, my God. But, you know, wow. I tell you what, it, it's true, though. It's like there is a, a completely different clock that operates from whenever you grew up in evangelicalism than yeah. what the rest of people operate on. Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, so my sister had her first child when she was 17. I just thought that was kind of normal. Like I, I knew yeah. it wasn't, yeah. but I was like, oh, that's not too bad. You know, mm-hmm. for me, the, the worst thing was she wasn't married. I remember being 18, 19, and finally got pregnant when I was 20. And I was like, I'm so old. I'm, but now on the <laughs> other end of things, I'm like, hey, by the time my 14-year-old is, is 18, I'll be 40 and I can go do whatever I want. <laughs> um, there are some plus sides. But at the same time, I'm like, man, that I was a baby having babies. Yes. No, um, absolutely. And yet you had so many adult responsibilities placed on you whenever you were a child. Yeah. And I think sometimes it can feel like being so much older than what's actually reality whenever having so much yeah. responsibility at a young age. Yeah. And that that's how it felt a lot of the time. I didn't always feel like I was 18. Yeah. And I mean, that horrifies me now. My eldest is 15. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're only a few years away from how old I was when I got married. And I'm like, there is no way yeah. in hell you are going to be mature enough <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, gosh, mm. just a lot of, yeah, a lot of probably, I mean, and we struggled a lot because we were young and my husband went back to university to retrain. So we didn't, we didn't have a lot. Um and one of the reasons why, because we would try different churches and one, it was a nightmare because we actually had, um, my kids are only 12 months apart in age. Mm, so going okay. to church with two kids that uh, mm-hmm. that tiny um, was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but then it was also the pressure from the church of um, tithing. And I was like, we don't yes. have anything spare to give. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's, there's nothing there. So but then again, I would have panic attacks going to these churches because they'd start playing yeah. um, the worship music that we had listened to at the previous yeah. church. And there were a couple of times where I would walk out mid-service. And mm-hmm. thankfully, thankfully, my husband was really understanding. He never, never made me feel less than for having that. And that was with both of us not understanding panic attacks. We'd never really... Yeah 
discussed a lot as to what we were actually feeling about mm-hmm. our beliefs because you know that was <laughs> that that was a very scary thing to do right yeah absolutely yeah. and so when did you get to this point of having your family and realizing that you needed to leave the church for the good of your family and for you? So that actually happened after we'd joined the Mormon church. So like what happened with that was my kids went to kindergarten and I had became friends with their friends' mums and their families happened to be Mormon. And it was never that I really believed the doctrine. Um, I remember the first time trying to read the Book of Mormon and I was like, this is so badly written. Like the <laughs> grammar in it, it does not make sense. Um, I thought the same thing. <laughs> not an easy read at all. Yeah, holy moly uh, for the Book of Mormon. That's that's what I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not yeah so for me I was just like if I can't read this like there has to be something wrong with it like (laughs) oh um but yeah we we joined the Mormon church my husband only did it for me which in some ways is really sweet in other ways I'm like you should have just said you didn't want to but um we call it our social experiment <laughs> um, <laughs> because we were in there long enough that we went through the temple. Like we did the whole, oh wow, whole shebang. Um, got sealed as a family, so my kids still talk about the funny clothes we wore in the temple. But it was sitting in. So at that time, they had um, three sections of a service. So the first hour, everyone was all in together. The second hour. Um, the kids go to children's church and the adults stay and have um, a lesson. And the third hour, the men and the women separate. And I remember sitting in the woman's part is called Relief Society. Um, and hearing homophobic comments. Mm. And I sat there going, that's not right. Um yeah. Things like one woman was shaming a young woman who'd come to church and was wearing pants. Um, and as someone who mm. I would, so I didn't, because I didn't grow up in the Mormon church, I didn't understand that you're supposed to dress a certain way. You're supposed to look a certain way. Um, yeah. And I would quite often, especially in summer, I would like, I would wear dresses and skirts, but mm-hmm. I would wear sleeveless tops because it was hot. Yeah. Um. This was and this was prior to us going through the temple, so I wasn't wearing garments. Um, but I just didn't think anything of it. To me, a shoulder's mm-hmm. a shoulder. Who cares? Um, I got tattoos while I was in the church. I got my nose pierced. I um, shaved half of my hair off. Like I never conformed to what they thought I should be like, and it horrified me that someone was being shamed for coming to church and wearing pants. I remember my my youngest at the time, so they would have been four or five, five, I think, coming to me and telling me that they had been told that when they're a bit older, they have to serve a mission mm. and that everything in life was leading up to the point where they could go through the temple and then serve a mission. And I was like, no, you can do whatever you want. And I was mm-hmm. like, if you serve a mission, 
I will be moving to wherever you're serving your mission so that I can still see you, um, which is very not how Mormons do it. You let your kids go and was that you're because, here. I'm wondering if that's because of your experience in Africa. Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah there's an, even now my kids talk about moving overseas and I'm like, can I come too? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I, I need to make sure that you don't join a cult. <laughs> my kids are amazingly oh. intelligent and so much better than I ever was and have critical thinking. But um, sometimes it worries me. I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah. But um, them coming home and us having to unteach what they were learning at church. Yeah was the moment where we went, we're done with religion. Yeah. We're done. We're done. And that was really hard because I had lost a lot of friends in becoming a Mormon. And then mm-hmm. I lost my friends because I left Mormonism. Um, yes. I lost that community again. But it was, how old was I then? I think I was about 27 when we left. And it took another couple of years of a lot of thinking, a lot of discussions with my husband as and trying to figure out. And it terrified me. The first, I remember the first time my husband told me he didn't believe in God. Mm. And I froze. And I was like, well, what happens when we die? Yeah. And you're not going to be in heaven with me. Mm. But then that, that really made me think. Mm-hmm. And that was that was definitely the start um, of me being an atheist. I'm hearing that there was so much future thinking, and that becoming atheist helped you mm. be present, and yeah. it also helped you be more present with your husband and with your kids. Yeah. Oh. A thousand percent. Like my father-in-law passed away in 2020 and it was the first time I'd had someone die where I didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. And it made me pause a little bit and have to sit with that uncomfortable feeling of yeah. I'm not going to see him again. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And it's yes. definitely made both of us um, – because our personal beliefs are that we don't believe there is an afterlife. We believe this is it. Mm-hmm. When we die, we die. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we want to make as many memories together as possible. We want to make memories with our kids. Yeah. We want to enjoy this life because there's not that thinking of, well, you get to enjoy stuff when you go to heaven or there's an afterlife or, yes. or whatever it might have been. Like we are – so much more present, but we also, in a lot of ways, especially with other people in our life, like family and stuff, we have very, very firm boundaries mm-hmm. because it's a, mm-hmm. I mean, I said it to myself last week, I'm 36 years old. I'm not putting up with this stuff anymore. I'm not going to no. live with this the rest of my life because this is, this is the life I have to live. Yeah. And I want to... I want to be happy and I, I want to be able to be me and mm-hmm. not, not have to conform and not have to please other people, which is really hard for me because I'm definitely a people pleaser. Um, I don't like people to think poorly of me at all, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like very much the conditioning of evangelicalism, especially for those assigned female at birth to 
please others. And, you know, I'm just really thankful for you sharing about these experiences. And there were some things that you were mentioning about what it is that you lost in going from these high control religions and, and cult. Yeah. And I am wondering through all that you left, what did you gain? I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I'm at peace with who I am. I've gained critical thinking. <laughs> yeah. I can question things and I don't get told off for it. Um, I've gained oh, a lot of a lot more empathy for others. Mm. Um, I don't always agree with what people do. Um, but as long as you're not hurting anyone, it's not my business. It's not my place to tell you how to live your life because that's what I did for a long time. I would, mm-hmm. I would tell people what they should do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, just really at peace within myself. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> that does make a lot of sense. And I just find that very meaningful, finding peace within yourself whenever so much that is taught in cults and high control religion is that you need a God or you need a person to be able to have peace and how much anxiety that can cause it. Like, but you found that peace within you. Yeah. I mean, it's very, I don't have to rely on anyone else or on God or in prayer to know that I am smart and capable of making decisions for myself mm-hmm. and for my life. It's been quite, quite eye opening. If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self about liberation, what would that be? Mm, to trust my gut, mm. to have critical thinking. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, like I said before, you know, I, within myself, I am smart and I am capable. You know, if if something doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. And it's okay to go with yes, that feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Our body yeah. is so wise. Yeah. And being in those high control groups, it teaches us that our body is not wise and that others seen or unseen are more wise than us so learning that your body is wise is um just such incredible incredible advice thank you so much for joining natalie and me on this episode of the liberated porch podcast if you enjoyed what you listened to and learned from it please share and subscribe to this podcast. And I hope to catch you next time on the Liberated Porch podcast episode. This is your host, Kent Morgan.